welcome to the National Affairs Podcast. I'm Dan Weiser. And I'm Devorah Goldman. And we're the assistant editors of National Affairs. National Affairs is a quarterly journal of essays on domestic policy, political economy, society, culture, and political thought. It aims to help Americans think a little more clearly about our public life and rise a little more capably to the challenge of self-government. It is published jointly by National Affairs Incorporated and the American Enterprise Institute. Today, we're excited to welcome Matt Continetti, who until very recently was the editor-in-chief at the Washington Free Beacon, but is now a resident fellow at AEI, where his work is focused on American political thought and history. Matt is also a contributing editor for National Affairs. We'll be discussing his excellent piece from our summer 2014 issue on the theological politics of Irving Kristol. And since National Affairs recently published its 10th anniversary issue, we'll also talk a bit about the role of magazines in public discourse. Matt, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So first, let's get to magazines. Irving Kristol founded our predecessor journal, The Public Interest, as well as The National Interest and the British magazine Encounter. He once said that influential magazines tend to be ones with small circulations, kind of trying to reach a narrow niche audience. Why did he have that emphasis? Why was it important to focus on a narrow audience rather than a broad-based magazine with mass appeal? Well, I, I think because of the sort of public policy interests that were reflected in the public interest, for example, you were never going to have a broad audience for this. But more generally, Crystal used to say that, you know, he could have 6,000 subscribers and that was fine as long as they were the right subscribers. And he also said in another context, you know, give me 6,000 subscribers and I can change the world. Why is that? Well, it's because fundamentally elites do run our society. And so if you want to shape elite behavior, you kind of have to pitch it to them. This was a concern also at the founding of National Review in 1955 with James Burnham, who was a longtime senior editor at at National Review and an advisor to William F. Buckley Jr., often urged Buckley to make the magazine more accessible to kind of the professional classes, the educated classes, so that it could maximize its impact. So journals like National Affairs, National Interest, Public Interest, even National Review, they're not going to attract a mass audience, but you want to be able to convince the people who do read of the value of, of your ideas. And in a 1995 panel about the influence of magazines, Crystal said that he believed conservatism should be cheerful and that a grim version of the movement would not produce energetic adherence or interesting ideas. What do you make of that approach and how do you think it squares with conservatism today? Well, one of the qualities of Irving Crystal was his sense of humor, his love of irony. He described himself as a cheerful pessimist. So he did kind of have an equanimity about him. That is a word that's used often to describe him. He believed that nostalgia was a dead end. His kind of politics of prudence begins with the world as it is and with looking at the realities in front of you and accepting them, accepting what you cannot change, and then moving from there to deciding how you might best cope with what you can't stand. And so this was his attitude. One of the remarkable things about Crystal was the consistency of this attitude. It's apparent in some of his earliest writings in his 20s, and it continued until his final published writings. 2006 was, I think, the last piece published by him in the Weekly Standard, for example. How would that apply to today? Well, in the piece, The Theological Politics of Irving Crystal, there is a quote of his where he says that, the politics of nostalgia is always self-destructive. And so I think he would view a lot of our politics today, which is steeped in nostalgia, as self-destructive. Even so, Crystal very early identified certain trends in our politics that have become only more pronounced, including an 
a nationalism, which is a word that he used often, populism, which is something that he came to embrace with qualifications. There are always qualifications, as well as religion and politics and religious revivals or the rise of evangelical Christianity, more traditional forms of Catholicism, and also to a much smaller extent, Orthodox Judaism. So I think he would not be happy with the current state of our politics, but I think he would understand it a little bit better than, than many of us. You also mentioned early in your piece that Crystal attracted attention more for who he was and for his ideas. So what was it about his personality, do you think, that attracted such scrutiny? Crystal was humble, modest person. He often described himself as kind of, you know, a man of letters or a publicist of ideas, someone who could communicate these things very well. So that I think has led to a lack of focus on what he actually thought. And so one of the reasons I wrote this article now five years ago was to kind of drill down into what he really believed. You know, Crystal's personality was such that people were very interested in kind of the various functions he played in, in New York and in Washington. He was a magazine editor. He was a mentor to many, many, many people, journalists, politicians, foundation officers. He had a role in kind of philanthropy on the right and directing projects and grants. And he was very close to politicians, including Jack Kemp. So he had such a wide array of activities that I think many of the people who look at his work in life tend to focus on the activities and not so much on the contents of the writing. And the writings were, were quite prolific. And Matt, you also in your piece talk about the political climate of the 1970s. There was apocalyptic environmentalism, intellectual exhaustion on the left, intellectual confusion on the right. Things have changed a bit since 2014 when you wrote this piece in terms of where the political scene is, but do you think some of those parallels still hold today? Yeah, I do. In National Affairs' 10th anniversary issue, the fall 2019 issue, there's another article about Irving Crystal by Ruth Wise, and she suggests the same, that these same parallels between the, the 1970s and the current scene. And so they seem to hold up even after five years of my piece. The 70s were a moment of great social change. I'm kind of the, all of the emanations from, from the student rebellion and the anti-war movement were carrying on and continued into, in the beginning of that decade. And it was a time of real rethinking and debate within the broader conservative movement. And part of that was the kind of integration of the neoconservatives, including Irving Kristol, into this broader conservative coalition. So clearly there's a great deal of social change happening in America today, happening quite rapidly. And there's also a great debate happening within conservatism that also includes renegotiating the place of the so-called neoconservatives in the conservative movement today. You also highlighted two epigraphs that Crystal included in his book, Reflections of a Neoconservative, and you noted that those were the only two he ever included in his books. The first is from Kierkegaard, that everything that passes for politics today will be unmasked as religion tomorrow. And the second is from Charles Pagoy, everything begins with the mystical and ends in the political. So what is the significance of these statements, do you think? I think just on the face of it, it suggests that Crystal saw religious underpinnings to our political life. That is, our political debates 
are in a way derivations of much larger theological issues. And this was something that becomes apparent the more you read his work, that in back of arguments over public policy are deeply rooted religious impulses. And we'll obviously get into how he divided those. But I, I think this allowed him to identify pretty early on the, the importance of the religious right, which many people did not quite get when it sprang into existence at the end of the 1970s and early 80s. And I think it would allow him to see the new progressivism and moves towards social justice as a form of religious revival. Matt, you mentioned that Irving gave a speech here today, actually, in 1979. It was at a conference of theologians. Michael Novak organized that. And he sort of later turned the ideas from that speech into an essay, Christianity, Judaism, and Socialism. Can you tell us a bit about that essay and how important it is as he was developing these ideas about a theological politics? Right. Well, the conference, which was held in 1979 at AEI, was a conference of theologians. I think the fact that Crystal spoke to the conference illustrated his interest in religious questions. The religious kind of disappeared in his writings in the middle of his career. He was actually among the few editors at Commentary after the war when he worked at Commentary who had any interest in religion. So he kind of de facto became the Commentary's religion editor. And then in the ensuing decades, he became involved in kind of urban studies and questions of political economy. Later in his life, he wrote a series of essays on Judaism for commentary, so that it was kind of a return to an intense reflection on religious matters. The appearance at the AI conference in 1979 is kind of this intermediate moment where you see the influence of theological understanding in his worldview. And so this is where he kind of comes up with two great distinctions or antonymies that I think frame a lot of his thought. The first is between the rabbinic and the prophetic, and the second is between the orthodox and the Gnostic. Crystal identified with rabbinic Judaism. He preferred the Judaism of the rabbis, one focused on practice, adherence to the law, to the prophetic Judaism of, say, you know, Abraham Joshua Heschel, this, the focus on justice, moral reform, and exhortation. And he saw this as related to the dichotomy between orthodoxy and Gnosticism. Orthodoxy, again, being kind of the traditional accepted practices and views of a religion, and the Gnostic being what he called a almost metaphysical rebellion against the world as it exists, and antinomian impulse to kind of throw off the law, to throw off the weight of tradition or the ties to tradition, and realize the, the spirit, you know, make the most of one's inner self. This was something that Crystal did not like at all. You mentioned that to a Gnostic, the world is a very bad place. Yeah. Why is that? Well, because there's so much injustice, because your inner desires, impulses, your dreams cannot be fulfilled. The law ties you down. When you look at the world, you know, why is there evil in the world? There's something wrong with the world. And so a Gnostic is, possesses a knowledge that will enable he or she to transcend this. And it might be personal to take the form that they wish to, but it might also be a social in that their gnosis or knowledge will allow them to transform the world and make it right, make it better. So yes, yeah, so I think for Gnostics, when they look at 
the scene before them that they're filled with a sense of outrage at the injustices that they perceive and, and they don't have a appreciation for the things that are worth saving in our society. All right, Matt, so let's talk a little bit about how this Gnostic and this Orthodox impulse manifest themselves in politics and society. Mm. So you mentioned in, in 1968, Crystal claimed that there are two fundamental questions every society has to grapple with. Why and why not? And he sort of started to argue that why not was becoming an answer rather than a question in society. Could you talk a bit about that argument he was making there? I think you put it very well. I mean, he writes in the July 1968 issue of Fortune, I quote, all human societies have to respond to two fundamental questions. The first is why. The second is why not? Meaning, you know, why is the world the way it is? And the second question, these are my words, you know, well, why not do whatever I want? And Crystal goes on, I quote, it is religion that traditionally has applied the answers to, our, to, to these questions. In our ever more secularized society, it is still religion that has supplied the answer to the second. On an ever larger scale, he continues, why not is ceasing to be a question at all. It is becoming a kind of an answer. Now, this, this is written 50 years ago. The power of Crystal's writing is such that things that he wrote decades ago, half a century ago in this case, still feel relevant to the reader today. But I think the broader point here is that it is religion as an institution that has given direction to most people's lives, that has supplied them with meaning, and that has supplied them with an understanding of the world and of their place in it. And once this institution becomes degraded or debased or begins to lose its power over people, then the individual is uprooted and looks for answers elsewhere. It might not take comfort in the sense that they are playing a small part in a larger cosmic story or a ancient tradition. And so this will lead, I think Crystal implies, to the adoption of, of Gnostic ideas and ultimately a rebellion against orthodoxy, tradition, and the world around them. And in a 1991 essay, quote, The Future of American Jewry, Crystal discussed a new philosophical spiritual impulse among a certain type of social scientist. So would you talk about the nature of that impulse and what he thought its ramifications would be? Yes, this is one of Crystal's most, well, controversy and Irving Crystal were never far apart. <laughs> and indeed, that's one of the reasons I push back in this essay on the, the true assertion that Irving Crystal was filled with the good humor and cheerfulness, that that is true. However, his career was also marked by at times, ferocious intellectual controversy. And when he writes in the 1991 essay, The Future of American Jewry, that this new philosophical spiritual impulse could be summed up, and I'm quoting in one phrase, man makes himself. That is to say, Crystal goes on, the universe is bereft of transcendental meaning, it has no inherent teleology, and it is within the power of humanity to comprehend natural phenomena and to control and manipulate them so as to improve the human estate. He described this impulse as a secular humanism. That phrase became the point of a debate in the letters pages of commentary. And what was perceived as Crystal's attack on secular humanism was denounced by people who consider themselves secular humanists. Actually, this paragraph that I just read is reflective of a long-standing conservative idea. You can um, go back to some of the works that influenced Whitaker Chambers, for example, and informed his idea that ultimately the fight was between believers, theists, and atheists or agnostics. I mean, that's how Chambers kind of conceived politics. You get a glimpse that Crystal might have been open to that view when he 
goes after a secular humanism. Well, Matt, let's also talk a bit about capitalism and socialism, which obviously Irving wrote a lot about during his career. You have a great quote from your piece that I'll quote from now here. Quote, it was out of the tumult of modernity, out of the clash between science and religion, between the Gnostic and the Orthodox, that capitalism and the Industrial Revolution was born. But capitalism, too, soon came under assault by a Gnostic movement, socialism. So can you talk a little bit about what are the vulnerabilities of capitalism here that he's talking about? Right. So Irving Kristol is famous for the title of his second collection of essays, which is Two Cheers for Capitalism. So why two cheers? Well, because capitalism does two things. It improves our material life exponentially. It's what you know, Jonah Goldberg calls it the miracle in his book, The Suicide of the West. And capitalism, second, provides kind of the maximum amount of individual liberty. You are free in liberal democracy. You have a sphere of autonomy that the government cannot violate. However, there is a third thing that capitalism does not do, and that is tell us how to live. And because of that, capitalism is open to attack by people, critics, who feel like they have the, <laughs> the way to live and the way people should live. Now, for most of the history of democratic capitalism, the market in the aftermath of the, whether you date it to the modernity or to the Industrial Revolution, society and culture was infused with Christian and Jewish theological understandings. And so capitalism didn't need to tell people how to live because that's what family and church did. What Crystal's friend Daniel Bell pointed out in The Cultural Contradictions of Capitalism, however, is that wealth and freedom had the unintended consequence of undermining this moral and cultural foundation. And so one of the consequences of the rise of democratic capitalism was the erosion of core institutions like the family and the church. So what are we to do? This became kind of Crystal's project, which was to defend bourgeois, what he called bourgeois values, and defend them in the public sphere, ultimately knowing, however, that the place where they're inculcated is the family and is in the religious community, and there's very little politics can do to influence those two institutions. Crystal said in a 1989 talk that values are not created, values are inherited, and he was concerned about bourgeois virtues and other old moral codes and dogmas losing ground. Would you speak a bit about that? Right. Elsewhere, I think it was in an essay that Bill McClay wrote about Crystal around the time of his death. He, he recounts dinner, I think, at AI, where Crystal said, again, controversially, you know, religion is what you were born with. And this became a subject of a debate at the dinner. The way I interpret that remark is, we don't remember our formation as individuals. You know, what's your earliest memory? I have vague memories of being five years old or being four years old. But the truth is the human person is basically formed by them. And you grow up within a religious tradition or not within those earlier years. So you are born into something. I think that's what Crystal was referring to. And by the time you have these earliest memories, by the time you're five years old, you have been inculcated in a social, cultural, and theological milieu. And if you don't have that sort of environment, if you're not brought up this way, or if you're brought up in pathological environments or uh, hostile environments, then you're probably going to exhibit social pathology. And you're probably also going to be more hostile to the broader 
society because it didn't do much for you, did it? So I think that's what he was getting at. You know, I love this quote that I think was that you're referring to. You know, he, he was telling a group, I forget, this is kind of a random talk. It was not actually, if I recall correctly, it was not on religion. It was hmm. on like taxes or something or income inequality. But he said, quote, I know that there are some people who think that values can be rationally created, perhaps by study, by philosophical analysis, or by a computer. But of course, values are not created, he goes on. Values are inherited. And he continues, there's no such thing as a rationalist religion that gives you an authoritative moral code. If there were, you would have heard of it. There are no net rationalist Ten Commandments. Morality is derived from certain fundamental dogmatic truths, and I emphasize that word dogmatic. It is the function of a religion in a society such as ours to provide the dogmatic basis for those truths. So what he's saying there is it's we derive our moral truths from, the relig from religion, and of course the instrument of religious education and instruction is the family, right? And you can't just, I know you see going to the bookstore and you see, you know, like, the rationalist Bible or, you know, here's the, the rationalist moral code. And he's saying that doesn't, even the people who think that they're abiding by a rationalist moral code are in, in effect just reflecting the moral dogmas that were inculcated to them when they were children, right? So it, you're not going to go to a person and say, here is my rationalist code of ethics, follow it. Maybe they will, but are they going to really believe it? Is that why they're going to behave ethically? Crystal saying, probably not. And Matt, some of those bourgeois virtues you talk about that come from family and religion, thrift, industry, self-reliance, discipline, mm -hmm. public spiritedness. You note in your essay that people have always revolted against those things mm -hmm. in, a, in a capitalist society. How has that manifested itself in our politics, both back when Crystal was writing and today as well? Well, I mean, it's a demand for material comfort, I mean, I, mean, I think is, is the easiest way. And so that, of course, manifests itself in the desire for what are called entitlements and economic security. And once the government becomes the provider of entitlements or economic security, the demands on the government to provide ever-increasing security and entitlement are more pronounced. So it's kind of a vicious cycle, one that leads to dependence and also one that leads to a government that takes on more functions than it can handle responsibly, but also becomes more intrusive in the way it relates to its citizens. So so one of the consequences of the cultural contradictions, one of the cultural contradictions of capitalism that rather was in effect declining support for capitalism, both philosophically and just institutionally, that is that as capitalism deepened and became more widespread, so would the government become larger and more powerful. And so in a way, Crystal here is echoing some themes of Joseph Schumpeter, who kind of talked about this in his masterwork, uh, Capitalism, Socialism, and Democracy. You also wrote that while the socialist rebellion against bourgeois capitalism lasted until around the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991, Crystal had argued that their opponents, capitalist theorists, had missed something important, that the free market would slowly erode the foundation of orthodoxy on which it rested. As you wrote, quote, the new capitalist testament began to consume the old religious one. Right. Would you talk to us a bit about that? Right. Well, this is a reference to something that I had quoted him saying earlier where he talked about the origins of Christianity when he was talking to these theologians, as we mentioned, in 1979. He was talking that, by the way, there are plenty of historians and Christian theologians who would probably disagree with this interpretation, but this is how Crystal put it. He said that Christianity arose as a Gnostic rebellion against Judaism, against the law of the rabbis, against 
but Christianity wouldn't, couldn't survive unless it found some type of orthodoxy because Gnostic movements have a tendency to kind of exhaust themselves and kind of, you know, flame out, be evanescent. They can cause quite a bit of damage, just like a fire, but eventually it will, it will burn out. So what did they do, the fathers? That Well, they actually took the Hebrew Bible and they incorporated it into their New Testament by calling it the Old Testament. And this was, he thought, Crystal thought, the great genius of Christianity was to not start all over, but to anchor itself within, within Judaism. And so taking that explication, then we see the necessity for some type of orthodoxy, some type of defense of traditional authorities and understandings. If you don't have that, then you have a, your society can go haywire. You also talk about sort of a new capitalist civilization. Mm -hmm. So what were its slogans? What did it stand on? Well, basically, the chief slogan was, buy now, pay later. You know, I mean, you can have it all, right? I mean, think about Amazon. You go from regular mail to two-day delivery to now, you know, day of delivery. So instant gratification. You know, carpe diem, seize the day, right? Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. So it's a contraction of one's time horizon. Everything becomes more immediate and, you know, becomes more instant. So that lessening of perspective has real social costs in the sense that the more inward one turns, the less one thinks about others, frankly, and also institutions that have much longer time spans than, say, the Amazon Prime delivery schedule, right? But do you think about families? I mean, these are intergenerational structures. And if you think about religions, the time span is even longer that we're talking about. But capitalism, in the view of Crystal and Bell, had the effect of making everyone look to the now and look to the immediate. And so the iconography of this would be the crowd of people at a bus stop just looking at their cell phones or people walking down the street with their earbuds in and in, in kind of enclosed in this very individualistic sphere. Now, there's great benefits. Again, Crystal's not one to shy away from the benefits of this, the benefits of affluence, the benefits of freedom. Sometimes institutions like the family or church can be stifling, right? And I think everyone would acknowledge that. <laughs> there are plenty of bad families. There are dysfunctional fam families. There are plenty of religious strictures that individuals just do not want to obey. However, liberal democracy also has this tendency to push always towards the present. I mean, this is something, again, you can see echoes of Tocqueville in this, this line of thought as well. It's, it's important to I mention Schupiter, I mentioned Tocqueville. You know, Crystal's drawing on a long tradition, of course, including Edmund Burke, as well as Adam Smith. So Matt, as this capitalist society focuses more on gratifying desires, there's also social alienation. Mm -hmm. People are going to look to the state to try to fill those gaps and those needs. The state can't really do that. And also, Crystal has this great quote here that you mentioned, whereas the bourgeois democratic state can rely only on the self-discipline of the individual, which affluent capitalism itself subverts. Again, those contradictions you're talking about. So what are we kind of left with here if we're relying on the state more, but that's also not satisfying? Well, we're, we're left in a pickle. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's just, this is just kind of the dilemma of modernity. And this is when Crystal talks about, you know, the problematics of modernity, 
which is a phrase I think he uses at the end of his autobiographical memoir about what he concerned him most. This was a problematic, and the problematic is not something that can be solved. You know, I mean, the way that Crystal looked at the world was he said there aren't problems that can be solved, or if there are, there are very few of them. But there are conditions with which we have to cope. And so what you just described there, this cultural contradiction of capitalism as interpreted by Irving Crystal and Daniel Bell, is a condition. And one has to just think about how society can best cope with it. Now, there are a variety of ways. One, one is strengthening the institutions of family and faith as best as we can. Another is to promote and defend the bourgeois virtues, which is what the neoconservatives did. Another is to basically construct what Crystal called a conservative welfare state, which is a welfare state that provides the benefits necessary for an industrial or in our case, post-industrial economy while minimizing the bureaucracy and centralization that can be so hostile to freedom. And this was, again, a project of Crystal's to kind of begin to understand what a conservative welfare state might look like. And this in itself was controversial among the conservative movement because the older conservatives or the, say, Buckleyite conservatives associated with the National Review were hostile to the very principle of a welfare state. Do you think that a conservative welfare state could be something sellable in today's conservative movement? Yes. I mean, I don't know whether under that title, but I do think that there are conservatives or people on the center right today who are kind of unsteadily progressing or moving towards something that might be called a conservative welfare state. Though I don't know if their conception is the same as Crystal's. The Crystal's view was that basically the universal benefits, such as Social Security and Medicare, were justifiable and were also not as intrusive to individual freedom than a lot of conservatives thought. Basically, if the government just writes you a check, you know, he didn't see what the harm in that. The question is just, you know, can you afford it and how much of the check? He actually was supportive of expanded social security benefits. Today, when people on the right kind of gesture toward a conservative welfare state, they're thinking more in terms of in what they call industrial policy. So it's a, it's a different, it is actually more bureaucratic in a way. Now, there are many programs and we don't need to get into the details, but it's less a defense of, say, Social Security and Medicare than it is a kind of new agenda of wage subsidies or targeted investment or you know, infrastructure development. That's not so much what Crystal thought. He tended to defend basically the core components of the welfare state, so pensions, unemployment insurance, some type of aid to basically the disabled or you know, unwed mothers with children. He wasn't against that in principle. It doesn't seem to me, I mean, I'd be interested in what you think, but it doesn't seem to me that that's actually what we talk about now. In fact, the person who seems to be most protective of those things is the president, right? Who just the other day said he, yeah. would, never, he would never touch Medicare. Right. So in right. that sense, he is kind of part of the conservative welfare state. Well, Matt, you mentioned either trying to bolster a conservative welfare state or re-energizing, bolstering the institutions of family and faith. There's a group that's opposed to that in a way. You call it the new clerisy in your essay. It's trial lawyers, journalists, people in Silicon Valley, Hollywood, Wall Street University administrators. They have a different view. And I think you wrote in your essay that the expansion of the welfare state for them yeah. gives them more power and resources. Um, can you talk a little bit about that class conflict we have now? 
Yeah, this is how Crystal, this was an important part of Crystal's thought, and that is the idea of the new class. So the new class are basically professionals. They're, you can call them the educated class, you know, lawyers, social workers, the media. You mentioned some of the others. The new class, Crystal thought, was waging a conflict with the traditional business class the way you might say it today, are the people associated with like extractive industry, manufacturers or oil men or timber, the old kind of interests. They were engaging, they wanted more resources. And the way that they waged this war, according to Crystal, was under the banner of equality. So by focusing on, say, income inequality, they would justify expansions of the government that would bring resources to, to them, to the new class. This is how the neoconservatives kind of understood the battles at the time that they were writing in the 1970s and 80s. And I think there's some parallel to politics today, though I think what the new class has become basically moralized in recent years and now is, again, almost informed by a religious sensibility of, of social justice. You know, this, that's what's driving them today which was not necessarily the case in the 1970s. They were obviously egalitarianism has religious roots and such, but the social justice warriors as the uh, kind of the bannerman of the new class is both similar and, and different than what Crystal was dealing with. You also wrote that Crystal was, quote, immune to egalitarian impulses. Why do you think that was? <laughs> I don't know. He has that wonderful quote that he told the, theolo the theologians. He said, you know, I don't like equality. I don't like it in sports. And you can almost hear him say this too. I don't like it in sports. I don't like it in arts. I don't like it in economics. I just don't like it. He didn't find it persuasive in any way. And this was a, one of the reasons, again, speaking of interconservative or rather intraconservative debates, this is one of the reasons that Harry Jaffa, the founder of the Claremont School of Thought, was so hostile to him and wrote many essays attacking him, none of which occasioned a response by Crystal. But he didn't understand equality as a, as a concept. Yeah. You know, um, <laughs> just, it, wasn't it wasn't interesting to him. And he was kind of an implacable person. If he didn't think if something wasn't interesting, he wasn't going to spend much time about it, on it. You also mentioned that he was convinced that a history of the country written 150 years from now would contain a chapter on, quote, the aristocratic impulse. So who are these aristocrats and what is this impulse? Well, basically, the aristocrats are people who are better than others. And the impulse is to, as he puts it, to tell society what to do, what, you know, what shape it should take. In democratic capitalism, society basically shapes itself through the interaction of consumers over time and investors. The aristocratic impulse is to interfere with that process and to assert other prerogatives. I mean, I think that's what we see all the time every day now. And, and, and the mechanism tends to be bureau bureaucracy. That's the instrument through which these new aristocrats can kind of impose, impose their agenda and, and shape the society according to their own design. And Matt, just to, to start to conclude here. So Crystal, and you write in your essay that there's this ongoing clash still between the bourgeois values and those who want to represent those and uphold those and the aristocracy you're just talking about that's more of the kind of educated class now on the left, particularly right now. And you also write that there's temptations of nostalgia, probably typically associated with the right, and utopianism typically associated with the left. But you said Crystal had a different view. His was focused more on prudence and how that's important in politics. 
how can that be an alternative to kind of these two twin temptations of nostalgia and utopianism? Well, again, I think as I was saying earlier, it just begins with the idea of this, let's look at what, what's before us and go from there and not get, you know, the past is not coming back. This is something that he said often. You can't turn the clock back. He really, he did believe that. You know, he famously told Pat Buchanan in a column in Wall Street Journal after Buchanan's address to the Republican National Convention in 1992, he said, I have news for my friend. And they were friendly. I have a news for my friend, Pat Buchanan, the culture wars are over and we lost, right? And this, is, this was a controversial thing. Buchanan disagreed vehemently with that idea. But this was kind of Crystal's sense that you're never going to revoke the New Deal. Don't even try. Try to deal with the worst aspects of the great society, right? Politics needs to be interested in the future. He often used the phrase thinking politically. To think politically meant to think in terms of shaping the future. So this is a difference between neoconservatism and, say, the conservatism of Russell Kirk or, or even of William F. Buckley Jr., where there's always this possibility of recapturing the spirit of the path, of going back to before these great revolutions in, in, in the nature of the relationship between the citizen and the state. Crystal said, you know, there are ways we can reform, there are ways we can improve. There are ways we can address social pathology, but it's folly to think that we're going to go back to some other time. And I think he had a, a good point. Of course, I, I would think he had a good point because <laughs> right. I wrote this essay <laughs> about all, this, all of the points he made. Yeah, which is great. <laughs> Just a yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to emphasize about the bourgeois agenda? agenda? Well, I don't think it really exists anymore. Okay. <laughs> that might be one thing. <laughs> you know, I mean... Uh, Charles Murray writes in Coming Apart that he just wishes the upper classes would preach what they practice. There aren't many defenders of bourgeois values in American public life today. That's not even the way that we talk about these practices or habits. It would be helpful if we could kind of recapture some of that language. Mm. But that's not really where our I mean, it's certainly not where our politics is today. I'm not even sure that's where our politics was when I wrote this essay, where people were much more focused on kind of you know, the intricacies of policy or the broader contours of messaging. Today, it's all politics of personality and kind of identity. That is a difference uh, that's taken place in the last five years and making it even more harder to recapture some of Crystal's modes of thought and, and expression. Hmm. And Matt, just to conclude here on a final question, this is kind of a perennial thing, but if we were going to have something like a bourgeois agenda again, is that something that comes from a president, a new administration that has that tone, or is it something from the bottom up from institutions of family and religion on a, on a local level? I know that's a, people always debate that kind of thing, but mm -hmm. where does that come from? I mean, I don't know. I would say, you know, if we look at the history of the progressive movement, the politics of that came rather late. I mean, the, the progressives were hyperactive in creating civil society organizations, institutions. They were politically involved, but they were also creating great things like whole house or, you know, social movements, right? I mean, even the, the temperance movement was in a way a progressive movement. So when I look at our politics today, I don't, I don't see a lot of activity in this. There's a lot of philanthropy, a kind of top-down philanthropy, but I don't see any kind of widespread movement for bourgeois values or institution building, what you kind of have is you have a very divided public. 
and they're divided along lines of religion, class, race, ethnicity. And so we're much more interested, in, I think, now in trying to defeat the other side than in articulating kind of a broad vision of what society should look like or, or even get to work building or creating institutions that could help improve things on the margins. This is probably a Twitter effect. You know, we're much more interested in kind of like being indignant or just expressing their, our outrage at something or someone than we are in kind of putting the phone down. And I don't know what the thing would be, but there are places that do these types of projects. I mean, David Brooks is involved in a bunch of stuff like this. So I think we need more of that and kind of less performative outrage. Well, it's a kind of a dour end, but National Affairs is committed to that future-oriented agenda you were talking about. So we're trying to do our part. You're trying to do your part, Matt, at AEI with your scholarship. Pessimistic so. optimism. Yeah, it's, well, it's very conservative, yeah. But anyway, so Matt, we always end our podcast with overrated, underrated. So we're just going to throw some topics out there. First, I, wanna, I know you're a scholar of conservative thought, so I want to ask you about fusionism. Obviously, it was very influential in the, during the Buckley era. Now we've seen some more splintering and fragmentation. Is that overrated or underrated today? Fusionism is underrated today. Fusionism was the sense that the freedom of the individual mattered, but political freedom, freedom was an end in itself and politically, but only a means to an end socially and culturally. I think we've forgotten that. Fusionism is definitely underrated. Fusionism was not a good word for what it was. But Frank Meyer, who did the most to kind of develop this thought in the 60s, mm -hmm. just called it the synthesis. And he, he rooted it in basically kind of the Judeo-Christian orthodoxy that Crystal defended and also kind of America's constitutional founding. And I think it's interesting that criticisms of fusionism often turn into criticisms of America. Next topic would be economic growth. Overrated or underrated? Also underrated. <laughs> Crystal was an advocate of growth. The problem is that growth has slowed down and we're not really sure why. And so this is kind of makes the question a little bit difficult to answer. We would like more growth, but we don't seem to know how to achieve it. And I think that has led to us underrating it as a concept because no one really quite understands how you get back to higher levels of growth. But, you know, people are trying to work on this question. Now, doesn't, doesn't the 10th anniversary issue have a good discussion of productivity, right? Is that Yes, uh, Donald Schneider actually yeah, talks about that. Right. Yeah, and, then, and how that relates to elites. And, and that's one, you know, improving productivity would be one way to get higher levels of growth. Having more ideas and innovations would also be a way to get to higher levels of growth. And I'm with Ed Conard in thinking that we're just, the globe is awash in capital. And the issue is that we just don't have any ideas. So, okay, why don't we have any ideas? That opens up larger questions. Okay, and a final one here, Matt. Capitalism. Irving Crystal gave it two cheers. Your thoughts on whether it's overrated or underrated? Capitalism is most definitely underrated <laughs> today. Its critics have emerged, reemerged on the right and the left. It needs defending. And the most important thing to realize is that we've been in the similar places many times before. At the time Crystal was writing, or at the time, rather, he, he wrote for many years, but at the time he spoke to the theologians 40 years ago, capitalism was under attack. In the 1930s, obviously, when Crystal was actually on the, on the far left, capitalism was under attack. So liberal democracy, democratic capitalism, they're always under attack. They require defenders. Right now, it's become just fashionable to attack them. One can defend them while also noting their weaknesses. 
liberal democracy and, and democratic capitalism. They, they have weaknesses, and we've spent a good deal of time talking about them today. But ultimately, though, what, as Margaret Thatcher said, there is no alternative. You know, what, what is a better option? China? I don't think so. Of course, people say, oh, well, you, the Nordic countries. And the Nordic countries aren't socialists. I mean, talk to them. You know, they'll say it. We're not. We're not socialists anymore. They 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 went through that period, but they had to, because of the consequences of those policies, they had to make drastic reform in the 1990s and early 2000s. So, okay, I mean, when you say Nordic, what you really mean is you want a slightly more generous welfare state with regressive taxation. And I just wish the advocates of Nordic style social democracy would be intellectually honest and say that the only way you can get there is by massively taxing the poor and middle class. Elizabeth Warren won't say it. <laughs> you know, maybe she'll maybe she'll say it after I record this, but she hasn't said that yet. But that's the only way you get there. So, what are the alternatives, Iran? I, you know, I don't know. The alternative, of course, is some un, you know imagined ideal that exists in the head of the critic. And Irving Kristol will be the first to say that it's just utopianism. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to start with where start with where you are, and where we are as our societies, which, while flawed, are better than almost any historically realized alternative. Well, thanks, Matt. That was a very realist, prudent, empirical approach worthy of Irving Crystal. So we appreciate the conversation. It was great. We enjoyed talking with you. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank, thank you. Thank you very much. If you'd like to read Matt's essay or other articles in National Affairs, please visit our website at nationalaffairs.com and consider subscribing. In addition to a printed copy of National Affairs, subscribers obtain unlimited access to our online archives. And you can listen to more of our episodes of our podcast by subscribing on iTunes, Stitcher, and Ricochet. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at National Affairs. Thanks for listening.